Hey everyone. So today's episode will be pretty different than most. It's an artist talk that was hosted by me that was facilitated by the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. It features their first virtual visiting artist in residence in film and media studies, Fabienne Cola. Fabienne talks about her start in Haiti to moving to Canada and creating nine successful film festivals, being named one of Canada's top 100 Most Powerful Women in 2019, and listed as one of Canada's top 40 under 40 in 2018 for her achievements in business. Shortly after this was recorded, I found out that Fabienne would be joining me as a colleague on the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design's Board of Governors, so that was pretty cool. I want to thank Melanie Colosimo, NASCAD, and the Anna Leonowens Gallery for making this event a possibility. Also, Uh, Due to a lot of people requesting this, I decided to start selling art prints on artpaysme.com. So if you want to check out the website, you can see some of the prints that I have available. And, uh, you know, got a couple of new clothing products coming out pretty soon that uh, if I can get myself moving on, we'll see some some other new product and um, keep you posted. For the people in Halifax, friends of the show, Anna and Zach, are hosting a pop-up shop on December 6th. I'll be there live, and uh, I'll be selling. So if you want to see the product in person, you want to meet me, chop it up, and chat, there's your opportunity. I'll let you know more details when I have more details, but uh, I'm excited. I hope you enjoy this episode. What up, artists? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm the creative director and founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. This is the Art Pays Me podcast, and I'm passionate about finding ways that people like you and me can make a living for ourselves off of our creativity. And, you know, maybe we can make the world a better place at the same time. Let's get into it. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to NASCAD's first virtual lecture as part of the NASCAD Public Lecture Series. My name is Melanie Colosimo, director of the Anna Leon Owens Gallery Systems. Our hosts this evening, Dwayne Jones and I, are streaming to you from Jabuktuk, Halifax, in Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq Nation. This territory is covered by the treaties of peace and friendship which Mi'kmaq and Wolostakiuk peoples first signed with the British Crown in 1725. The treaties did not deal with the surrender of lands and resources, but in fact recognized Mi'kmaq and Wolostakiuk title and established the rules for what was to be an ongoing relationship between nations. Our guest this evening, Fabienne Kola, is joining us from Jojage, Montreal, which is in the traditional territory of the Gagnon-Quehaga. The Gagnon-Quehaga nation is recognized as the custodians of the lands and waters on which Fabienne is joining us from today. A few housekeeping notes before we begin. Please know that we will be recording this lecture and it will be available to stream over social media shortly after the evening ends. Should you lose your connection, you'll be able to source the video on the NASCAD and Annalie and Owens Facebook pages. Those of you who have joined us on NASCAD's Kaltura platform, you'll be able to engage in the Q&A portion of the evening via the chat window in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. We'll be taking questions at the end of the lecture. The NASCAD Public Lecture Series has a long and rich history of bringing prominent artists and lecturers who have been recognized as leaders in their field to the university community. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome and introduce your host for the evening, Dwayne Jones. 
Duane graduated from NASCAD's communication design program in 2004 and is the founder of Art Pays Me, a lifestyle brand and podcast that advocates for pursuing a life of creativity, purpose, and abundance. Duane is also records and information manager for the Dalhousie Faculty School of Medicine and vice president of the NASCAD Alumni Association and holds one of the alumni seats on the NASCAD Board of Governors. Welcome, Duane, and thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, Melanie. Thanks for that intro. And uh, good evening, everyone. So I, I uh, have the pleasure of welcoming Fabienne. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, she's the virtual visiting artist in residence for NASCAD in uh, film video, sorry, film and media studies. She's an award-winning actress, filmmaker, producer, speaker, and business owner who works tirelessly to support and promote diversity on and off the screen. She's the recipient of the 2019 Canada's Top Most 100 Powerful Women Award. In 2018, she was named as one of Canada's Top 40 Under 40 and has received many, many more awards and honors. Uh, she's created and manages nine successful festivals in Montreal, Toronto, New York City, Halifax, Port-au-Prince, and Salvador, including the Montreal International Black Film Festival, which is Canada's largest Black film festival. These events have attracted close to 1 million festival goers, supported over 2,000 artists, have welcomed top names such as Harry Belafonte, Spike Lee, Stedman Graham, Danny Glover, Martin Luther King III, Danny Laferriere, Wyclef Jean, P.K. Subban, Suleiman Sisse, and Alfred Woodard, to name a few. Folks, I barely listed half of what uh, Fabienne has accomplished. She's definitely a force to be reckoned with, so I'll let her take over from here. Welcome, Fabienne. Thank you so much, Dwayne, for this amazing introduction. And thank you, Melanie. Before I start, I'd like to thank um, so much in advance, Nate and Britt, for every great things they're going to do this evening to make everything go smoothly and for everything they've done to make all this happen. Um, thank you again, Melanie and Dwayne. And I would also like to um, thank Martine Durier-Cup for her trust, um, for really choosing me as the very first artist in residence in NASCAD film and um, media studies. So this is an honor for me to be here. So, um, and also I'm, I'm looking forward to working with Marcia Connelly um, jointly to, to, to do something special um, this fall. So thank you everybody for tuning in. Welcome to this um, um, very first lecture that uh, an artist in residence will be, will be giving um, at this department. So thank you again for being here. So today um, it is an opportunity for me to um, kind of uh, go with you through my long and hard journey, um, trying to um, work for massive inclusion of black artists behind and in front of the camera, as well as in the arts. But before talking to you about all that, I thought I would give you an idea of how this lecture would go. So let's dive into the presentation. Um, so yeah, my long journey toward um, this work. 
the lecture content, um, just so you guys can bear with me and follow uh, for me throughout this journey. Um, so in part one, I'll be talking about where we are today. That means what we've accomplished so far um, in a nutshell. Part two, um, how it all started back from when I was in Haiti, um, how my childhood impacted who I am today and my journey when it started also in Canada. Part three, um, I'm going to talk to you about how we created a movement, what the movement is, how it began. Part four, the challenges that we had to over overcome um, throughout this journey. Um, and uh, part five, the opportunity um, opportunities today that we face and the opportunities that are there for everybody to seize um, when working for master Inclu I mean, massive inclusion. So, um, and so much more in between. And then I, I'm going to be very, very happy to take all your questions at the end of this session. So I want to tell you guys that normally for such a lecture, it would take me three days to talk to you. Um, and if they asked me to sum it up, that would have taken me kind of six hours. So I don't know how I'm going to do that in one hour, but we'll try. We'll try to sum it up to one hour. So if you see that I talk too fast, please, Britt, Melanie, or Nate, or Dwayne, please tell me to slow down. Um, and uh, so people can really understand with my beautiful French and Creole accent, what the heck am I, am I saying here? So um, feel free to tell me. It's going to be a casual talk um, discussion just to give you an idea, but I'm going to be with you during the whole fall semester. So we will chat again. Uh, so let's dive into everything. Where are we today? Today, um, we are doing great. We are doing great, but it's still very hard because we're nowhere near where we should have been. been. Um, and there's so much at stake and so much to do. However, so far, we've been able to um, create nine festivals in Canada, in the United States, in Haiti, in Brazil. We're going to talk about that later. We also have been able to have massive impact, showcasing, supporting, um, promoting over 3,000 artists throughout um, the journey and welcoming over 2 million festival goers toward, toward our festivals. Um, and also there's the glitz and the glam as well um, during the festivals when we have a lot of celebrities coming. I think Dwayne named a few today um, that those are celebrities that really believe in the in the movement and they support us and they come and we welcome them with great pleasure. And a lot of you guys that have participated in our festivals, whether it's Montreal, Toronto, Halifax, or elsewhere, you may have met some of our celebrities or saw them as well, including Spike Lee several times and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, we also have benefited from me me major media coverage um, locally, nationally, and internationally. The media help us spread the word and they help us get the news to you 
of course, we have a massive um, social media effort that connect directly with you guys. So um, that's what we've been doing um, today in a nutshell. But in between the festivals, we also have been able to create some programs, um, impactful programs for emerging artists. And we're going to dive into that in a minute. So how did everything begin? How did we get here? So um, I never take the time to really dive into my childhood um, to talk about my upbringing in Haiti and everything. Um, and when people say, how did everything start, started, uh, start, I, I just start from Montreal. I said, oh, well, it started in Montreal when I just came here. So um, I decided this time I'm going to take a step back and talk to you more um, about what kind of child I was um, in Haiti and how it was for me. So this photo, I love it very much because this is me, my brother and my sister. So we grew up in Haiti. I was born and raised in Haiti. So I'm a product of Haiti. Um, and today I can proudly say I'm, the, I'm a woman of two islands, um, the highland of Haiti and the island of Montreal. And uh, so um, growing up in Haiti, I was a very happy child. I was very shy at the beginning when I, before I, I uh, was 10 years old, I was very, believe it or not, I was very, very shy. I couldn't look at people in the eyes. I was very timid and um, I was looking for myself a little bit. And um, at home, that was chaos. Um, at home because my, my father and my, mo my, and my mom, my mom and dad, they were constantly fighting. They were constantly um, arguing. So I did not have, I, I did not grow up in this, um, you know, beautiful, um, you know, with harmony and everything else in, the, in, in my, my family, unfortunately. And by the time I reached nine, nine years old, they got divorced. They, well, they, they got separated and it was messy. They failed. I mean, they failed their divorce. I always say that they failed their divorce because um, divorce doesn't have to be so hard. And uh, so very, very early, I knew I was responsible for my life. I knew I was going to be, I, I must be in charge of my life. I must be taking charge. I mean, taking care of myself, not because uh, our parents were there, but I knew that since they couldn't even take care of their divorce and we were in the middle of that, I mean, I better take, I better prepare to take charge of my life um, very quickly. So, um, but they were very loving to us. We had Great, we still have great parents, they love us, but this chaos situation um, was really bad. And I believe today that it has helped me be the person I am today. That is another lecture. <laughs> We're not gonna dive deeper into that. Um, so um, that helped me make choices. That helped me have a, vis have a vision for my life, for myself, for where, where I wanna be, what I wanna do, and what I don't want. Um, for my family, for my life and everything else. So I believe art came very early in my life. Um, although my mom and my dad are artistic in their way, um, their own way. I think art was that place where I could go in school, where I could go and just find myself. Um, whether it's poetry, whether it's theater, um, in school, whatever, whatever it was, that helped me find myself. And very quickly, I became a model 
to make a long story short, I became a model in, in my teen years. Um, and um, I became, I was uh, chosen to be, to be, to represent Haiti as Miss Haiti um, um, later on. And I also um, became an actress. I, I was not a trained actress. So, um, you know, one thing led to the next, commercials and so many things. I was already in the milieu and uh, I got my, my first break from a director called Raphael Steins and he casted me um, in a, a soap opera that he had, a TV series actually, um, at the Haitian National Television where I had my first acting role. So that's how I started. I, I, uh, he was, I was so persistent in convincing him to take me in that TV series that uh, it was make it or break it. I mean, you try. If you fail, we never want to hear from you again. <laughs> I was maybe 17 or 18. And I tried and he kept me for one year. And after that, uh, um, he was making a movie. Um, and it was an adaptation of a, of a, a, a he was adapting a, a, a novel. And he created a role for me, a character for me that did not exist. That was a smaller character. That was a small character. But that was going to change my career forever. Because thanks to that small part, that's why sometimes I say there's no, you know, there are small parts. But sometimes it can mean something. That can be the beginning of something for an actor. So long story short. I got that small, small part that he created for me so I can be in the movie and that will open up all doors for me because at the premiere, I received uh, lots of directors. I said, hey, I'd like to give you a part here. I'd like to give you a, 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 an opportunity there. I'd like to work with you for my next movie. I want to do that and that. And then very quickly, I was propelled to stardom in my own country. I became one of the most popular actress in the country. I became an award-winning actress after several movies. Um, so things were going very, very fast for me. And I was very successful, signing autographs in front of my house, everywhere I go. And when you are 19 or 20, and you are signing autographs, you are um, the most popular actress at the time and everything else, that is great. At the same time, that can be pretty tricky. So I became um, to have the imposter syndrome. I became to feel like, well, things are happening too easy. Um, it's, it's, like, it's like I felt, I started to feel like I didn't deserve all this credit or all this attention or all this fame or all the work or all the trust or whatever else. So I wanted to go and vanish and start over somewhere where nobody would know me. And I promised myself, I said, if you become, if you become a success somewhere else, in another market, in another country where nobody knows you, when you where you would start from scratch, then you would be deserving of this success. So that's how my 19, 20-year-old self was thinking at the time. In between. Um, my acting careers, my modeling careers, my being Miss Haiti at the time. And then <laughs> one thing I didn't tell you, me being Miss Haiti at the time, it was in, 20, in 2000, it was kind of 40 pounds ago. <laughs> so um, I was uh, way skinnier at the time. But anyway, um, in between this, I also um, became an um, entrepreneur, um, a salesperson, uh, somebody that would... 
um, buy and sell things and then sell um, things for my mom because my mom is my mom and both my, my parents are entrepreneurs. My father, more like a photographer that has always has his own photo salon and and his own, his own business. My mom was working with the government, but at the same time, aside, he, she was doing, you know, uh, buying things and selling things like clothing and makeup or whatever else. And I would sell them at school, you know, and, and convince the people in school because at the time it was um, prohibited to solicitate people and the kids to sell them stuff um, um, in school. So I, I, I had to convince the people in school to, to let me do that. Um, so that was, that earned me the price of persuasion at the end of my of high school. Anyway, so all that to tell you that I had been doing acting and in that my artistic, that's my artistic side in Haiti. And then at the same time, I was work selling um, in stuff. So my entrepreneurial and saleswoman skills um, started there um, while I was going up. And so back to the imposter syndrome, I wanted to leave. I wanted to go to America and conquer America and then do something, you know, yeah. Conquering America in Canada. <laughs> so I was on my way to Hollywood when I stopped here um, in uh, Canada to visit some friends in Chicoutimi at Chicoutimi. Chicoutimi is six hours from Montreal if you buy if you buy car, if you go by car. And um, and then they said, Well, um, this is fantastic that you want to go to Hollywood. What about you know spending a few months here in Montreal and learning your craft, learning in a smaller market? Um, but that would be a less of a drastic, you know, move to go from Haiti to Hollywood. What about go to, from Haiti to Montreal and then to Hollywood? I said, oh, that's a nice idea. So I got back to Haiti, did my paperwork like a big girl, um, and I, I got back a few months later as a landed immigrant in Montreal because I wanted to learn, you know, in a smaller market and seeing what things, how things are done here. It was a smaller market compared to Hollywood. But a huge market compared to Haiti, so that's how I land. That's how I landed in uh, Montreal. I love the city. Everybody was speaking with different accents, and then you 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 saw different colors, and people were from all over the world, and then all kind of ethnic backgrounds. And I'm like, oh wow, what a city! What a place to be! That's my kind of place. So I started here, and very quickly. I understood that it's, it was going to be an uphill battle for me to really work in the industry because I was among the very few black actresses trying to make it here. Uh, and when I turned TV and I would go to the movies, seeing some um, Quebec films or um, seeing some Quebec series, there was nobody that looked like me at the time. And that was about in 20, 2003. And 2002, 2003, yeah, 2003. And I knew that it was going to be very difficult. Um, so I, finding an agent was difficult. Be, having my um, recognition from the, the unions, the Union des Artistes, UDA or ACTRA, that was difficult. Thank God they had something called admission en bloc. It was like they would admit you if you could prove, if you could convince them and prove with kind of a, you know, a file like this um, that you've been, you know, working and recognized and, you know, 
and uh, you deserve to be in the union. So um, I packed up everything I could find as my experience in Haiti. Long story short, I was admitted to both unions. I thought that was my key to the industry. That was not. That was not because um, I would call all kinds of agents. They say, no, 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 we already have a black actress. So we don't want a second one um, uh, because nobody wanted to represent me because they knew I was not going to find any work. So finally, I find an agent, Serge Lapointe. He's still my agent today, although I don't work so much as an actress anymore because I'm so busy. But um, long story short, so I couldn't find all the auditions I wanted, um, I needed to, to really prove what I could do. So I ended up getting a, a few parts here and there, but nothing major. And that's when I said, well, you know, maybe if I go, I, I bring some films from Haiti to Canada, to Montreal, maybe people would enjoy them, would discover Haitian cinema. And somehow, somebody, somewhere from the industry would see me act in some of these films and would say, oh, let's give her a break. This little girl is not so bad, you know? She could act. So I was trying that strategy. And when we brought the films here, no festival would take them. So here I was with no job as an actress, no opportunity, no audition, and no festivals to accept the films I was thinking of, I was bringing. So I was sad, I was desperate, I was hopeless, and I was frustrated. I was frustrated because I was not given an opportunity to even prove what I could do. So I thought it was because I was not a trained actress. And then I looked around and discovered two amazing trained actresses that were also black. And one went to the Conservatoire des Arts Dramatiques du Québec. The other one was to the uh, École Nationale de Théâtre du Québec, de Montréal, peu importe. And they were not working anymore. They were not getting more auditions than me. So I understood that it was because of what we look like. So, and besides, I was coming from Haiti. So I was considered for the milieu as a black woman immigrant with an accent. And that's how I use, I decided to use my frustration as a stepping stone to something great, to success. And that's how everything started for us. So basically um, creating a movement. That's what's gonna happen following that frustration. Brit, if you could do, yeah, perfect. Um, how did everything happen? So we decided to reopen the Fabien Colas Foundation. Fabien Colas Foundation is a not-for-profit organization that existed back then in Haiti, but for a different mission before I came here. Um, and in this time it was to build bridges, support education through the arts and foster diversity through the arts. And we wanted to um, promote, showcase, um, create whatever you want, but to showcase diversity in front and behind the camera, to show black people, show people that look like me, but that couldn't find a voice either, that couldn't find a, a platform, didn't have a voice, well, to put them in the spotlight. That was the idea. And um, so fast forward now, um, we are in 20, 16 years later, um, we have been able to showcase 
um, over 3,000 artists, black artists. Um, we have been able also to welcome over 2 million festival goers in all our festivals and in all our programs. So this is um, the power of a frustration. I always say to people, um, it's good to be frustrating, frustrated. It's good because frustration can be the seed to something amazing. It can be the seed to make people take action. However, don't remain frustrated. Don't just stay there and be frustrated. Do something about it. Do something with it. Um, so that's what we tried to do, and it just worked. It didn't work only because of me, because we had we had a great team around. And the Fabian Class Foundation, for example, was created um, alongside Real Barnabé and Emil Castonguay, who are the co-founders with me as well. So with that, we built a team and a board, and then today I can be, um, I'm very proud of what we've accomplished together. So um, this is how the foundation started. Now I've been talking about that those nine festivals, these nine festivals. I'm going to show you what they are exactly. So I'm going to go very quickly because there's so much we need to talk about and I, I can't wait to take your questions. Why did we create these festivals, first of all? We created them because um, it's important to have a platform, some place where you can go as an artist and show your work. If your work cannot be seen, then what's the purpose? And if other festivals won't be taking these kind of films, then what's the point? So we're starting out, the first festival was the Montreal Haitian Film Festival at the time. And five years later, expanded into the Montreal International Black Film Festival. It was created in 2005. And uh, we are celebrating actually next week the 16th edition of the Montreal Black Film Festival, by the way, uh, which uh, will be taking place from uh, September 23rd until October 4th. And then we will, I'll tell you more about that later. And the second festival was Haiti en Folie. Haiti en Folie is like Haiti on fire, Haiti on fire. It's like, um, you know, the best of Haitian culture, um, outdoor and indoor. You have food, you have music, you have dance, you have theater, you have cinema, you have everything. Um, and you have literature as well. So it's really the best of Asian, Asian culture um, during the summer. And we welcome like a lot of people, up to 100,000 100, people um, per year, more or less. Um, and then we partner with a lot of other festivals as well to do some great stuff to, in the city. Um, we created as well the Quebec Film Festival in Haiti. This, it was a way to share Quebec culture with Haitian um, back home because here in Montreal, the largest um, Haitian population is in Montreal and uh, the Quebecers, they just dive into Haitian fully, they dive into the Montreal Black Film Festival. They love um, to, to, to see other things um, and, and discover uh, other cultures. So it was a way for us to just do the same, but in Haiti. The, so the... Um, to foster cultural exchange. And then we also do Fade to Black, which is a celebration of Black History Month in Montreal um, every year. It's a multidisciplinary festival called Fondue au Noir in French, Fade to Black. Um, we created the Toronto Black Film Festival in 2013. Uh, the Festival Haïtien Folie, we implemented it in New York City in 2016. And we have also the Halifax Black Film Festival in 2017 that we created. And alongside the Halifax 
at the Black Summer Festival that we put together in 2019. And the last baby is the Salvador Black Film Festival in Bahia, Brazil, which is, uh, oh, we're so proud of this festival because Salvador is where you have the most black people in, um, in Brazil and in one of the cities where you have the most black people on earth outside of Africa, outside of Africa. Um, so uh, these are our festivals, but at the Fabian Colas Foundation, we don't just have festivals. We also created a program called the Youth and Diversity Program. And within that Youth and Diversity Program, we have several initiatives. And um, uh, um, among these initiatives, we have, we give scholarships, we give scholarships. We have um, the black market that we do during the whole year, which is, which is uh, a series of panel discussions, workshops, and um, masterclasses for the industry in cinema. So people can come and learn, acquire new skills, network, and move their way up in the industry. But one of the programs that we're really proud of is the Being Black in Canada program. The Being Black in Canada program, if you could move the, the, the um, no, not move the, the um, move the, my face, I would say. I don't know if you can move it to the to the bottom of the photo, the um, video. Oh, I can do that. Oh, cool, perfect. I have more power than I thought, Brit. Okay, perfect. So, um, this program, being back in Canada, is presented by um, Netflix in collaboration with National Bank and created by the Family Glass Foundation. Um, this is a program where it's actually Canada's largest incubator um, training and mentorship program and create film creation program for dedicated to black filmmakers in Canada. So it started in Montreal. And as of last year, we, we extended in Montreal, Toronto and Halifax. So it's, it's Canada wide. And the idea is to um, help emerging artists, emerging black artists, to do their first documentary short film, films in the industry. Um, because we know how hard it is to do a film, how hard it is to get into this industry, how hard it is to get access to um, equipment, mentors, trainers, and, and then, you know, people from the industry. So we decided to put something together in, in a couple of weeks and months, they get um, to work with mentors, to do their film, to, to write their script. They get access to a crew to shoot their films. They get access to editors and an editing studio to edit their films. And then they get access to the Montreal Black Film Festival, the Toronto Black Film Festival, and the Halifax Black Film Festival to um, showcase their work, to, 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 to go and meet the audience and to have the verdict of the audience who um, has always been in love with these films. And at the end, they can go to other festivals as well. And um, this year, well, the 2019-15 um, films will be airing on CBC in November. And the French ones from Montreal have, have aired on Tele-Quebec. Um, they're still on Tele-Quebec. If you guys want to see them uh, online, they are on Tele-Quebec. And they are, all 15, being screened right now at the Montreal Black Film Festival online. By the way, the Montreal Black Film Festival will be online this year, so anybody can attend, by the way. So as of um, this year, 
2020, we're going to have 20 filmmakers instead of 15. And we're also creating an alumni program for the ones that were there before. So we will be training 20 new filmmakers and create 20 new films, but also um, help 20 past alumni from the program. And as of 2021, then it's going to expand to Montreal, Toronto, Halifax, Vancouver, Calgary, and Ottawa. And then it's going to be even more filmmakers that's going to be trained. Why are we proud of this program? Because we are on a mission to create the next Spike Lee's, to create the next Eva DuVernay, to create the next Corey Bowles or the next Jennifer Holness or the next Martin Chartrand, the next Xavier Dolan. Wherever you are in Canada, we're going to create the next one, but the black ones, because we don't see them in in. in the ones that exist, not all of them have access to training, mentorship, and in these kind of opportunities. So we want to give them. And by the way, that doesn't cost a thing for these filmmakers. It's completely free for them because we go get great partners like the ones you see on the screen here. We go. Um, we also have Telefilm Canada. We also have the Canada Council for the Arts. We also have all the local council for the arts as well, supporting this great, amazing, life-changing program as well. Was it easy to put that together? I'm going to tell you the truth. It was so hard to put this together that we started this program in 2014 and we had a first cohort in Montreal at the time and we spent 2015, 2016, 2017- with zero funding for this program. Why? Because nobody believed in it at the time. Well, oof, you know, we did the first edition in 2014 to try to showcase the success of the thing. But nobody believed at the time and both, you know, and uh, maybe we were too early. There is something called too early sometime. So the timing was not great. They didn't have enough money at the time and nobody, you know, it was not the priority in the industry. So for several years, we could not get this program off the ground. And then in 2018, well, we did all we could. We knocked at all the doors and we got it going. And this year, we're so, so, so happy to have even more partners with us so we can, um, not only for this year, but for years to come, that the program now is sustainable. And soon enough, might be your your, your kids, might be your daughters or your sons that are going to be benefiting from this program. So if you have an opportunity to support it, do not hesitate. Um. I'm going to talk about the challenge. No, 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 no. You can say, I'm going to talk about the challenges that we've been facing um, in this journey, um, which has been a journey of inequality. But before I dive into this, I want to say in between, um, I became an entrepreneur. So I'm, I'm not going to be talking too much about that because we're going to be talking again soon because I'm there for the whole semester as an artist in residence. So um, it's going to be part of another lecture. So stay tuned. Um, however, um, my journey um, as an entrepreneur started at the same time that I was navigating here to find my voice as an artist. So in between, I also had the time to um, do my first feature film called Minuit. And it was in 2008 in between festivals. Um, so I became a filmmaker and a producer and throughout my production companies as a production as well. And uh, we've been producing all these films um, with the youth and we've been producing festivals, we've been producing um, concert, um, 
broadcast concert and stuff like that. But I'm not going to be talking too much about that because that is a whole other level of difficulties. So let's focus on these challenges here. Um, what did we face along the way? I just told you. We faced um, a lack of funding for black organizations that exist in this country. Um, not just in this country, but, you know, like in the world um, for visible minorities. Um, what does that make that perpetuates the cycle of poverty within these communities when we don't have access, the same access, we don't have equal access to the same funds accessible to others? So um, it is important to make sure that um, we guarantee that our, our, our local communities, um, everybody is taken care of. So we, we faced that. Um, it was so hard. Sometime we would go to a program for, for, for a grant at the time. Um, either we would have way less than others, even though the impact we would bring would have been 10 times more than what, what is what the other ones they're funding. Um, however, just because we were serving black artists, we could not get more. We would get less than. The second problem we faced with the funding still was that sometime there were barriers that just blocked us. We just could not go, could not access the program. That means um, they would say, you don't qualify. Why don't we qualify? Because according to your definitions, the guidelines, we think we do qualify. We have everything asked and requested. Well, no, well, it's because, you know, and sometimes somebody told us, um, I'm not going to say who and which organizations, those public organization. And they say to us something like, um, well, your events don't have enough mainstream crowd. I'm like, what is a mainstream crowd? He said, well, you know, white people and, you know, I'm like, well, we do too. We do. And at the time I was polite enough not to try to say, well, what's wrong with you? You mean black people are not deserving? Like they, they don't count? Um, but at the time it was okay to tell us that. It was okay to tell us. Today nobody would say that. So um, we face systemic racism and, and systemic barriers um, from, from funding from the get-go and every day. It has been 15 years or 16 years of battling the system, of, you know, trying to make it and trying to prove that you deserve to exist. You deserve to do what you're doing, that Black artists deserve to have a voice and a platform. So at times I'm exhausted. At times I've been exhausted. And sometimes I'm still exhausted today because I see that um, there are many other fronts that we still need to take the battle. And then we've been having lack of opportunities um, that black, not yet, I'm still over there, um, lack of opportunities for black organization um, because when we don't have equal chances, um, when we can't, you know, get into a program, get access into this, get access into this uh, opportunity. So that that's kind of hard. Um, there's also lack of recognition for black organizations or black artists, of course. Um, so black artists and black organization, we, we are trapped into the system where you need to work twice as hard for 10 times as less, not even twice, you know, getting half as, as much. Like you get 
10 times, you know, less by working twice as hard. So um, this is what the, the kind of challenges we've been facing. Um, it's now with the, the new opportunities that we have um, following the George Floyd um, um, situation that has been killed by uh, um, white uh, police officers in the States, following, following that, um, with the Black Lives Matter movement, we see that there the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. We cannot see that there is a, 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 a awareness, more awareness toward, um, you know, how things should be, how to break that cycle. And what I loved is during the demonstration, which I went to, by the way, with my mask on, um, I saw everybody. I saw the students, I saw the professors, I saw the Quebec, the, 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 the private sector, I saw people from the government, I saw old, young, middle-aged people, I saw white, black, yellow, red, whatever, like blue, green. I mean, we were all together for that fight against systemic racism, which gave me hope in humanity. Which makes me understand that for the first time, I can feel, I can touch that change that is burgeoning. We see change in the mentality and we see all kinds of change. So the next slide, um, I'm going to, oh, by the way, in case you're asking why I had that photo um, before with Ari Belafonte, I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that um, when I was talking about challenges, um, I, I, I could find nobody else that represented challenges, I mean, that represents triumphs more than the Harry Belafonte that was our guest, distinguished guest um, at the Montreal Black Film Festival in 2012. Um, so that's why this photo is here. I mean, it represents like everything that is a high, hard fight toward freedom and toward opportunities. Um, one of my heroes. Um, so that's, that, that was why. So now let's talk about the opportunities that we can use to foster change. The ones here are not at all, it's not an exhaustive list as you can see. It is, I think, I think there are 10,000 opportunities that we can seize and 10,000 ways that we can foster change and include an inclusion of diversity in the system. I just wanted to highlight six of them um, and it's not exhaustive whatsoever and I'm gonna share that with you and why. Um, today, our organizations, myself, my team, and our artists, as, long, as much as you, we are facing, we, we, we have some opportunities in front of us. Um, people always say, what can we do to change things? How can we help? How can we help foster change? How can we help make a difference? So um, one of them would be affirmative action incentives and quotas that your organizations, that public organizations, the government, um, or public funders or broadcasters, unions, anybody can put together um, to change things. Why affirmative action? Because for so long, people of color have been nowhere to be found around the table. So that means we accumulated a deficit in anything, 
in everything because we, we've not been there. We've not faced been faced with these opportunities. We've not been in, inside of the room. So now, if we you we need to, to to balance things. We need to put everybody you know at the same level of opportunity. So if we want to do that, you do the math. You have to do massive inclusion. And to do that, this is not something that's going to come naturally. Because ever since I came here, people have been telling me, oh, no worries, Fabian, in five years, things are going to be, you know, something else. You know, diversity will be all over the place. That was 15 years ago. And five years later, oh, don't worry, in five years, things are going to be great. So if that never, we've been talking about diversity maybe before I came here or before I was born maybe, well, that was not a trendy word at the time, but we've been talking about maybe about inclusion for the longest time. Nothing has been done. Um, just look at the, all the boards of directors. Just look at the staff, the executive staff everywhere, anywhere. Just look at, you know, and then you will understand that not much has been done. So if we want to change that massively, well, it will not be done naturally. You know why? Because although diversity is a fact, you see people of diverse background everywhere, but inclusion is a choice. So every day, people have as an opportunity to decide, am I going to go for the inclusion or not? We have to fill a position. Are we going to look for somebody of color or not? We have a board of directors. What are we going to do to fulfill all the positions? So it's a, it's a, it's a choice. Because of a choice, it's not easy. People choose sometimes to go with the easy way. Not because of racist, just because it's so easy to go, you know, the same way. So that's why you need affirmative action. That's why you need quotas. I'm a fan of quotas. Because if we say, hey, we want 30% of everything to be women or 40% or 50%, we want parity, we will reach it. Because what gets measured gets to be done properly. But if you don't, if, if you don't put a quota, if you don't put a, an incentive, if you don't put affirmative action all together, nothing will be done. I'm positive, um, especially in the art sector, um, to make sure that everybody gets covered. Diversity parity, diverse parity. You know, sometimes I see some article and they say, oh, diversity. And then I'm looking and nobody of color there. And I see a bunch of women and then they all look the same. And I'm like, oh my God, but that's not diversity. That's just putting half of the population um, on that board. But where's the where's diversity? Where's the, the people of color? So I think this is great what we're doing for women to have some diversity there, um, to, to have some parity. But while we're doing that, Let's keep in mind that you can still put women and women of color in the mixed. So that way you kill two birds at, uh, with one stone. Um, so let's include women massively, but let's make sure that in this group of women, we have people of color massively as well. A, th a third thing would be dedicated programs to Black and BIPOC. BIPOC, by the way, for people that are not familiar with this, it's... a um, Black, Indigenous, and, and people of color. So dedicated program to Black and BIPOC. Some people, some of my friends that are for visible minorities, they are against this because they say, no, I don't want a program just dedicated to me. I want to be in anybody's program, like the whole, the big programs, and I want to be able to go there. We're not saying that it's going to be just for Black people only. We're just saying you can still go to all of the other ones, but there's one that is sure to be for black people or for people of color, that means 
you're gonna be sure to get it. You're gonna be sure that you're gonna get a chance to get it. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that you cannot compete with the other programs. You still can go to the other programs, but they did it with indigenous for indigenous people. It worked greatly. They did it with women in some cases. It worked greatly. Does that mean that women cannot go to other programs? Of course they can. But when it's a program for women only to foster women, because women have been in the, you know, um, lacking opportunities for the longest time. So now to balance things, we need to do this. We need to create these opportunities. And in the arts, um, the, in the arts industry, um, that's a big problem. So we definitely need to create these kind of programs um, to make sure that um, we're going to have the opportunities um, um, I see time is, uh, we need to, to move forward really quickly. So, um, the fourth one is refer, hire, promote black people like crazy, not just black people, people of color too, but we are at the, uh, uh, we are during a time of the Montreal Black Film Festival happening next week. So we're on the black people vibe, but I'm talking, uh, all I'm saying here can be, um, for people of color in general as well. So, um, Maybe you think you, you don't have um, leverage or there's nothing you can do. You can do something in your school, in your university, in your college, in your um, workplace, um, in your boards, in your neighborhood, in your groups, in your choir, in everything. Wherever you are, you can refer, hire, promote People of color, black people, you can do that. This is something you can do. When you hear that, oh, do you know such and such? You know, we're looking for a person. Oh, let's try to look deeper because people of color are all around us and black people as well. Um, that will make a difference. Um, sponsor and donate to black-led and black-owned causes, organizations, and events. Um, this is one other way you can make a big difference. Um, a lot of private organizations, um, you're looking at all they've been doing um, for their corporate responsibility and you see nothing and no organizations and no causes with people of color. We need to keep them, hold them accountable. We need, they need to, um, we need to shop at these organizations that support people of color as well and support women and support visible minorities. This is important. Um, but also, you can go directly to those black-led, black-owned organizations and, you know, and support them as well and donate. And when I'm talking about donation, I'm talking about donations from big organizations, but I'm also talking about donations from people, individuals. Um, and the support, buy, invest um, in black-owned, black-led organization. This is one, one way you can help with the Black Lives Matter movement. You can help support um, you. You make sure that you make it um, you make it a pledge of yours to make sure that you support a black organization. Make sure that you buy tickets for black events. Um, make sure that you buy black products or services. Make sure that you refer them. You share them. You like them. You you make sure that you are you have your DNA all over this. So um, th these are. Um, I didn't quite know how to shorten this um, to one hour. It has been something. Uh, but uh, I know that you will have a lot of questions for me. I, I could have kept talking for 
could have kept talking for a long time, but I would like to say thank you. And um, before I take your questions, I would like to invite you all to one of my favorite um, festivals ever. This is the Montreal International Black Film Festival. So we have 120 films for you from 30 countries and it's online, meaning wherever you are in the world, you can buy a ticket for $49 and attend the festival. And guess what you would do? Support a Black-led organization. And mostly, you're supporting Black artists because we have films, 120 films, showcasing Black realities and Black artists. And then it's not doing charity. It's also for you to be inspired, for you to learn, to educate yourself, for you to travel for you to learn new things, new realities, to discover new filmmakers. And if you are in film schools, this is a must because you need to have a broader view about what's being done in the world, what are the approaches, what is being done in the independent cinema. So um, that's not a sales pitch. That's like, it's a necessary, it's a necessary festival right now um, in the country because this is Canada's largest black film festival empowering black artists in 16 years. So it's from September 23rd until October 4th. And the passes are all access passes for $49. You get to see everything. And it's accessible on montrealblackfilm.com. And on that note, we thank um, our sponsors as well who are on the screen. I don't have to say to tell to say to, um, their name, their name. So Thank you again for everything. Um, it's been kind of uh, exciting to share my part of my journey. I wanted to speed up a bit um, so I could uh, tell you the most possible, but it was not, imp um, yeah. And uh, I, I cannot wait to take your questions. Fabienne, thank you for that. Thank you, that was an incredible story. And your journey is very inspirational. Uh, I'm going to lead off a little bit. So I really, I noticed that uh, Martine in the chat was a fan of this as well. But I love that the uh, frustration is the seed of something amazing. Bit uh, that that right there is <laughs> sometimes me as an artist. Uh, I definitely lead lead with that one. And and as a business person, it's it's very good. And mm -hmm. the other side. Uh, one thing that I'm wondering about in terms of frustration. So you were hit with a number of like basically walls when you were first starting out with this, pursuing something that is looking out specifically for black creatives. Uh, were you frustrated when suddenly I'm assuming you got a big bump after the most recent Black Lives Matter resurgence or were you sort of grateful for that? Um. Well, the Black Lives Matter um, resurgence movement um, struck me because I was confused. I was like, my goodness, um, that, that was hard. I think that, that, that what happened affected a lot of people um, mentally in the Black communities because that was not easy to be, you know, to see people that look like you being killed just for no reason like this. So that was very hard. Mm -hmm. And then we went from that to a, um, a world movement of collectively people are backing up, um, you know, are, are, are taking side against racism and people of all color, all background. And that was amazing. And um, yes, 
So some people reach out to us to say, hey, what can we do? And, and you know what? I'm not going to name names, but some people said to us, some white folks um, said to us, we are part of the ones that created that mess. Mm. Not, not them personally, but they say we are part of the people that created that mess. We want to help make change that. I would have never said that that way, but I found that very candid and so honest and and so nice from them, so generous. And uh, so they genuinely um, helped um, us. So we were, um, you know what? We were in shock at the same time from that resulted of that movement. But we are so um, relieved to see that it change, real change is about to happen or started. You see what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's a mixed feeling. So we're very happy. Um, for the support we've been having. Yes, we are very happy. We've been receiving random donations from people from all over uh, the world, mostly Canada, um, for the Being Black in Canada program, for the festivals and everything else. So we're very grateful to, to that. And we urge people that are working in corporations to go talk to their people. Go talk to the sponsorship department. Go talk to the philanthropy department. Go talk to them and say, hey, what are we doing here for black people, for black organizations? How are we helping? How are we part of the solutions? Because that's part of corporate responsibility as well. So, yeah, we've been very happy. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it's for me personally, I just remember having this conflicted feeling of gratefulness. But then at the same time, like, where were you when... I wanted this help before sort of thing, right? It's- no, I was not in that mood. I was yeah. not. I was, uh, I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. I understand where you're coming from. But I was not in that mood because, you see, there's one thing that Oprah Winfrey used to say. Oprah said, luck, because a lot of people are saying, oh, for me, you're so lucky. And I'm so, so, so mad and pissed when people are saying that because I don't consider myself lucky as a black woman, um, immigrant here i have never felt a, like a, I, nobody made me feel like before during the journey that i was a woman i never felt oh i'm a woman i have to prove myself but i always felt i was a black person mm. always gotcha. every day every time everywhere every second i was reminded that i was a black person even though nobody would say anything but not that i was a woman so i have to say that so um and saying that, oh, you're lucky, I think that has nothing to do with it. But my point was, Oprah was saying luck is uh, when opportunity meets preparation. Mm. Or preparation meeting opportunity. And, and then if that what, that's what luck means, then I'm lucky. So that means we need to be prepared for opportunities. Mm. And my second quote that I love is from Les Brown who said, it's better for you to be prepared for an opportunity and not have one than having an opportunity and not be prepared. And that's exactly what happened to us. We have been preparing for these opportunities today for 15, 16 years. I love that. When that movement, the resurgence of the movement happened when some corporations were looking for the ideal partner or they were looking for the program to back up or the festival or things like that. So we were ready. We were ready. We were ready to seize that opportunity. 
Had these opportunities come 10 years ago, that wouldn't have been the same impact. Mm -hmm. We were not um, as ready. You see what I mean? So I believe it's important. I know we have a lot of filmmakers um, um, listening today as well. I think it's important to get prepared every day for your, 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 what can be your break, your opportunity, um, get ready, get prepared all the time because you never know where the opportunity would, would come for your next film, your, ne- your next project, your, ne- your next collaboration, or for, for, for anybody, your next um, you know, um, contract or whatever. You need to be prepared. A lot of time we, you hear people saying, oh, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure I can do that. that. That's okay too. Sometimes it happens. It's not for you. But a lot of time... Something happens, you just cannot seize it. So I think um, that's what happened to us. But no, 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 we were not saying, where were you before? No, no, we were saying the timing is just right for you Mm -hmm. and for us. So let's try to make some impact here. Let's see what we can do. Great. Yeah, it was almost like that. uh, You were a little bit ahead, ahead of your time and then the rest of everyone else caught up and you were ready to go, stayed prepared. Another question. So for the film students, like you run multiple film festivals, how would you recommend that some of these young filmmakers or maybe not so young filmmakers, uh, like how, how do you package your work in a way that's going to get festivals to actually want to screen your the films? Yeah. That's a great question. Actually, I have a, um, a, um, part of uh, my residency. I'm, I'm going to talk to them down the, you know, during the fall about that very questions, like uh, to really prepare them for, um, to navigate film festivals and to seize opportunities um, that these festivals, not just mine, but every film festival in general can offer them. Um, In our world, let me take the three film festivals um, because I tell and the other ones, most of them are multidisciplinary festival or music festivals or other kind of festivals. So if you take the Montreal Black Film Festival, the Toronto Black Film Festival, or the Halifax Black Film Festivals, uh, Festival, um, thank God I'm not part of the programming team. I don't know how they do it. They are like, um, they are like, uh, how can I put that? Our programming team is just amazing. I don't know how they do that. So um, they get to do the whole work and everything else. So I'm not going to take credit because I have nothing to do with it. Um, and uh, I think they look for, first of all, it should be a film that have black people on camera. It doesn't have to be a whole black crew, but at least the main actors, um, two, three main actors should be black. Um, or it's a film about a black reality, a black something. Um, if it's in a documentary or it's about a black person's journey, um, even though the person is interacting with non-black people, um, that's, that's the main thing. First of all, that, that makes you eligible. You can be a filmmaker, a white filmmaker, a non-black filmmaker, an Asian filmmaker, a Latino, Arabic, native filmmaker, no problem. Um, to re- to re- as long as your film has diversity. For example, we had a film um, at the Toronto Black Film Festival called Boost by Darren Curtis. Well, Boost had most of its cast was black, but the filmmaker is white. But that was just perfect. It's just a great film and it showcased black talent. So um, 
So for the festival, it's really what's on screen that is better. And we had said we, we have said no to black filmmakers who um, had an all white or all Asian or other other um, people on screen. Great films, but there were no black talent on screen, so we had to say no. And then they, uh, there was a guy. He made a oh, beautiful a, a Japanese film with a whole Jap um, Asian crew, Asian cast, and uh, of course the program team said no. And he was a black director, and he said, "Oh, do you know how how tough it is for a black person in Japan to do a film like to do a film?" Um, and we said yes, but it just doesn't. It's not, uh, you know, part of the criteria. So it should have a black realities on screen. And the second thing I would say is um, perhaps um, it should be a great film. It should not be a, a bunch of cliches. It should be something that can, that needs to be told, a story that needs to be told, but technically great, artistically great. And the best way to know what kind of, what, what a film festival is looking for is to make sure you attend that film festival. It's to make sure you go and see what type of films are screened at those kind of festivals. So you can have an idea what kind of films, you know, what exactly, and you ask questions. And then you, um, you know, you ask questions, you, you meet the directors when you can, when you see them, you ask questions, you, you talk to the um, program, program people, program team of the festivals and stuff like that. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I love that. We, we have another question. Uh, this one's coming from uh, the chat. Do you see any issues associated with black filmmakers or producers in Nova Scotia with the specific history of African Nova Scotian reality? Any issues associated with black filmmakers in Nova Scotia? Actually, um, we have a bunch of panel discussions um during the festival they are free it's free on facebook it's gonna be free on facebook okay for everybody but the, um it's it's part of the black market the black market is the series of the industry panel discussion that we have um during the montreal black festival because it's online so everybody can attend and we have filmmakers and producers from halifax on some of these panels, including Cory Balls. We have Kumbi, that is actually, she's hosting, hosting a panel. We have Juanita Peters and uh, so many other people. So we're gonna talk about the, these very issues, women behind the lens, race bending in, in cinema, and then the lack of funding, and then so many things. And then um, that black, black Stories Matter. We have a, a, a great lineup for you guys. We have people from Toronto as well, um, like Jennifer Holness and Sot Sutherland and then so many, Karen King, and so many people um, from Toronto, Halifax, and Montreal um, in these panels. We have seven panels for you guys. Um, most of them, um, I think, in, in English and in French for people who are, asking, who are wondering. Yes, I see a lot of problems um, and a, a lot of issues affecting black filmmakers and producers all over Canada and also in Halifax. They get access to less funding. Um, they get uh, less of a voice. Um, it's the same thing all around this country, but I would say even more so in some case in Halifax that has uh, um, a history of 
segregation and and then systemic barriers and racism, like the whole country does, but Halifax as well. And I believe um, there is a great conversation going on right now to change things. So um, now is a good time to have these conversations. You know, let's face it, those are not easy conversations, Dwayne. That's not an easy conversation to have. But not having them is not solving the problem. The best way to solve a problem is to acknowledge the problem and to be like, okay, let's state the problem. Let's ask the right questions and let's outline solutions, which is what we're trying to do here. We're trying to do the panels and everything else. So thank you for this question, but I believe you will be able to have a a more extended answer um, after watching the panels or, you know, attending the panels online for free um, as of next week during the Montreal Black Film Festival. Um, but yes, there is there is uh, issues that need to be solved. Mm-hmm. There are issues that need to be solved, yeah. Great. So another question. <laughs> this is mine. Uh, have you, um, I'd like, I know you have so much on your plate. But have you uh, considered maybe leaning back full time into like acting or filmmaking yourself? Now that you can, you know, I know you had those issues with uh, discrimination about even in French film versus your your Haitian accent, which is something I was wondering you were going to talk about. Uh, but today, people seem to be being celebrated for embracing their identity. Like, have you ever just felt like maybe I should just go for it? My dear, one thing I did not say, you're right, you're right. Um, I had an accent in English. I had an accent in French. And today, when I'm talking to my um, friend in Haiti, they, they tell me, you have an accent. I'm queer all. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, so it's frustrating because you don't belong anywhere anymore because, you know, I'm too Canadian for my Haitian folks when I get back there. And then when I'm here, people are asking me, where are you from? Um, So it's it's like, but in Halifax, you guys are lucky because, well, lucky, um, because you guys have been there for 400 years. You are African Nova Scotians, most of you. So you're not immigrants. So nobody can tell you where are you from because, I mean, that person would deserve a piece of your mind. So, so, but here, um, it's like, even though some people are, are, was born, were born here in Montreal for two, three generations, and just because they're dark skinned, somebody will say to you, where are you from? Um, even though they say, well, some friends of mine, they say, I'm from here, Montreal. And they would be like, yeah, yeah, but, but where are you from? You mean my mom and dad, they were born here. Yeah, but where were they from? What the heck is this, you know? So um, that that was for my accent thing. I don't know why I I went through that details. But um, acting for me, um, this is something I love. I don't have much time to do as much um, today because I'm so busy with creating a platform and giving a voice to hundreds of of um, artists every year um, through all the festivals and mentorships and, you know, and trainings and putting all that together. For me, this is more important to make sure that we have this platform very strong to represent, showcase and promote and support as many artists as, as possible from here and from around the world. And then also making sure that we have 
a very solid and strong next generation of black filmmakers. Um, that it's more important for me. That's the new mission I, I, I'm, you know, I'm tackling than full-time acting. So I don't think I would ever go full-time acting, um, but acting, yes. I'm, I'm more, now I'm more in the produ production side of things, like producing a lot, stories with people of color, mostly, and um, directing. Um, I'm, I'm asked a lot if I want to direct right now, um, more and more. So I need to make more time for this, but acting full-time, no. Not because I don't want, it's just because you have to choose your battle, you know, Dwayne? You cannot do everything at once. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> so we do have another question. Uh, so as a leader, how do you approach companies and corporate organizations that do the very least actions or at least maneuver around those actions with problematic practices? Um. I'm going to give you a concrete example. It's not easy because you have to have access to them to kind of tell them, mm -hmm. but everybody can have access by calling, calling them, asking who's in charge of whatever department you want to complain about and then really ask for a meeting or a conversation or something like this. There will be somebody at the other end of the line of that company, chances are, um, to talk so you can or send a letter or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. If you have things to address, that doesn't mean they will listen to you, but at least you can send that. Um, I was, I'm not going to say who, um, which organizations, but I was talking to um, a big corporation and um, somebody very powerful called me from that organization and tell, asked me, Fabian, what can we do? What, what do you think we could do um, to foster change within organizations. What should we do? And I was so brutally honest. I said to him, well, one thing, because I knew that organization a little bit. So I said, one thing you need to change ASAP is to replace the head, the chief of diversity and inclusion. Because that chief of diversity and inclusion is a white man. It just doesn't make sense. If you want to have a chief of diversity and inclusion, I, I assume it should be a, a, a woman of color. That you would have the real the, the whole package. You have a person of color, you have a woman and everything else. And did you know that that a vice president that was the chief of in charge of diversity and inclusion, well, he has been affected to other things and they replaced him less than two, three weeks later. So... Um, that's a big change because it, it, it affected the result based on the lens through which you're looking at the problem. So if we want to change the solutions, like have real change and real solutions, that starts with the people um, that we hire as well. So how do we approach these companies? Um, it depends on your relationship with them. Based on your relationship, you can tell them point blank what you think, or you can just, you should be more diplomatic maybe, because if you don't know them, well, you cannot just go and, what about you change this, you know? Um, I think it should come from a place of, um, not humanity, what's the word I'm looking for? From a place of, um, um, you know, how do you call that in French? Oh my God, I have the word in French, bienveillance. Um, from a place 
of not love, but let's let's call it love. It's, it should come from a place where you want to help these people. The, the okay. people. You wanna you wanna help. You wanna be part of the solution, and you wanna be helpful to them. So you have a candid conversation, and then tell them, hey, we notice this, that, that, that. We believe we can help you with this, that, that, that. Or there, there might be a way to do that, 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 that. What about that? What are you guys doing? And sometimes they're working on solutions that you don't know yet about. Or things that have changed that you don't know about. So maybe ask questions instead of just accusing them of something. But everybody should be um, held accountable now uh, about what exactly are you doing for corporate responsibility. Maybe ask them that. And then they can have a chance to give you some few stuff that they're doing. Okay. So um, I think... Do we have do we have time for another question there? I'm seeing another question. Um, I'm seeing questions here. Okay, last question. All right. So, do you think that organizations fail to genuinely acknowledge the talent of Black artists when they focus on filling their quotas? Can you can you restate? Yeah. Um, do organizations fail to genuinely acknowledge the talent of black artists when they focus on filling quotas? Let me tell you something. A lot of people, even people from visible minorities, uh, um, from uh, that are visible minorities, they believe, I don't want to be a quota. I don't want to be a quota. I want people to hire me because I'm, I'm uh, talented. Because, you know, I don't want to be hired because it's, I'm a quota. Mm -hmm. I can't understand where they're coming from. But nobody will hire nobody because you're not talented. No organization has money to hire untalented people. No organizations. Mm -hmm. They're going to hire the best of the best. The quota is to make sure they look at you. The quota is to make sure they consider you. The quota is to make sure that um, when your name is coming and it looks like Fabienne Cola, well, it's funny, she might not be from here or whatever, that they still call me mm -hmm. for the interview. The quota is just for that, to make sure that we don't um, overlook people. We don't go past you and then we just keep going and then same old. Because if there's no quota, it, it will give the same result it has always given, which is no diversity, no people of color. Because if you want to change something, you have to, you, you cannot keep doing the same thing that created the problem and to hope to change it, you know? So the quota, we have not tried it in our society too much. In some places, yes, for women, sometimes there are places where they're quota in some programs or some, some, some grants or some, some organizations. But whenever there were quota, things moved forward. Things got better. But the notion that if there is a quota, all of a sudden, everybody that is hired, it's just because you're a woman, it's just because you're a person of color, but you have no talent. Has make no more makes no sense because I don't know of an organization they care about each dime, each dollar that they spend, and rightfully so, 
that will go out and just say, let's take anybody we find in the street and then let's just put them there because we need quota. No, no, no. They will look, they will be working very hard to look for the best talent out there. And that's going to be you perhaps. And everybody needs to celebrate that because whenever you see somebody of color or a woman of color or anybody of color, you can bet that person is twice as talented, twice as good as anybody else because nobody will take you if you're just average or the same. You understand? So um, the notion that we may be overlooked or talent or uh, um, anything or they don't see us for our talent anymore, it's just not true. Because that's the first thing they're looking at from, from a person of color. How good are you? Are you better than everybody else? Mm-hmm. And that's why. And that's why, you know, you will be there. But with no quota, you will not be asked. You will not be seen. Mm-hmm. You will not be considered at all. A- am I saying that quotas are the only um, solution? No. But I'm saying quotas are a hell of a great start <laughs> for a solution. Um, yep. Quota are, are really um, something that can definitely help. And this is not something everybody agree on. Um, and I totally respect that and understand it. But I am a strong believer in quota because I have had quotas in my organizations for, for example, women in our programs. With being Black in Canada, for example, it was clear that I need at least half of them to be women or more. Guess what? We've had three quarters women, half women, and it, because that was a, a, that was something that was clear. So now if you're coming to me with five men out of five, well, that doesn't work. You need to go back and, and start, you know, recasting. There's a problem. You understand? Yes. So, um, yeah, we need to start, stop. We need to stop um, questioning our talent just because there's quota there. Quota is great for business, for everybody. Amen. <laughs> uh, with that, I just wanted to thank you very much for uh, your insights and sharing your experience and all of that great stuff and look forward to more things from you. As uh, your residence goes on, I'll pass it on to Melanie. Thank you. Thank you, Fabian. Thank you so much for listening to the Arcade Week podcast. Thank you to Lange Beats for the theme music. If you got anything out of this show, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. The more you do this, the more reach the podcast gets, and the more artists I can help learn to make a living at what they love. If you want to know more about what I do, hit me up at rpaysme.com or at rpaysme on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest. See y'all next time.